So welcome uh, to the uh, virtual version of uh, deepening your practice. So because we're at the beginning of this, um, I thought that I would talk about what it is um, that we're doing while we're meditating, what it is that we're looking for, uh, the insights that we're attempting to find. And I thought that it would be useful to talk about them in terms of the three characteristics of um, existence, uh, not self, impermanence, and uh, unsatisfactoriness is how Shinzen defines it. It's often described as suffering. Um, Dan Brown, another one of my teachers, translates dukkha, which is the Pali word as reactivity. What we are looking to do when we meditate is to find some insight into the, the nature of our existence and to the nature of our own conditioning so that we can begin to understand how it is that we're responding to the present moment. And then uh, as part of that process, find out how we're reacting and then how that informs the choices that we make so that there's this process that happens. Uh, you have the object that can be sensed, the capacity to sense it when the the two have contact, a, a consciousness of that sensing experience arises. The mind immediately evaluates whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, or uh, I'd like to say urgently needs attention, doesn't really matter, and it's pleasant if there's time. And then it's compared to a perceptual database um, where previously conditioned experiences reside, and if the present unfixated, unattached uh, present moment matches something closely enough in the database, then the meaning of the database, the, the previously stored meaning, attaches to the present moment conditioning experience. And then ultimate reality, which is the pure sensing experience, becomes uh, conceptual reality, becomes the thing that we experience. Part of that process, of course, is what to do about the present moment. And as that uh, uh, forms in the mind, we make an intention and then take an action and then create a thread, a karmic thread that then engages the experience of, the, uh, of, of our entire trajectory. <clears throat> One way to think about it is in the present moment, all of the potentialities of the present moment, everything that's possible, uh, that could happen in the present moment, if you were to choose it, is there until you pick something. And then that something becomes uh, the direction that you're heading in and all of those other potentialities fall away. And then in the next moment, of course, the next uh, series of potentialities are there. You can take anything, but once you take something, that potentiality becomes the karmic thread and all of the other ones fall away. <clears throat> One of the things to understand about this process is that our conditioning affects our capacity to see the potentialities of the present moment. And if it becomes quite rigid and we move into fixed views, then we uh, exclude from uh, our consciousness, uh, from our awareness, the many of the possibilities. 
And so we simply don't take them because we can't see that they're there. So the process of meditation is opening this up so that you can see clearly what it is that's in front of you, the potentialities of the present moment, and that then you're free to choose the ones that would be most skillful, most beneficial for you in your experience of moving through life. Um, and so the exp exploration in meditation is moving from that place of conditioned views or rigid views and opening it up so that you can see completely what is uh, there that's available to you, knowing that as you make one choice and, and move in that direction, it changes the potentialities that are then available to you in the next moment. Then as you move through these series of choices, uh, uh, you you follow the the path of your life as it unfolds. Is that making sense to everybody? <clears throat> I wish it was so easy to do this that you could just describe this process one time and then you would instantly be able to see it, but that doesn't seem to be how it works. And in the beginning, of course, with, with Vipassana practice in particular, you need to have a base level of concentration in order to do the, the practices that might illuminate this for you. And so we talk about in the beginning of practice, um, access concentration or uh, developing the capacity to place your attention on the object of meditation that you want to focus on and keep it there without getting distracted by other uh, sensory events happening. The reason that I like Dan Brown's description of this is because he calls it reactivity. Uh, we have these capacities to sense. In, in, in Buddhist uh, cosmology, there's six senses. There's the standard five that you know in the West, touching, seeing, tasting, hearing, smelling. And then there's the sixth sense of mind. Mind is something that you can pay attention to uh, where is your attention in a given moment and when does your attention move from one object to the next? Is the, the attention very focused and contractive and on a single object? Is it very expansive, holding the whole space? But it is, how is it that the attention is drawn from one object to another? And then notice that you begin to collect these snapshots, these mind moments of the experience. We aren't really designed to look at the environment that we're in, to look at everything that's happening in front of us and to take an accurate uh, picture of them and then use that accurate picture as a way of understanding what's happening to us. Each of us has a database or a, a, a list, a hierarchy of things that have meaning to us that are high value. And really what happens is our attention moves from high value target to high value target. Then then we collect this string of samplings of the environment around us. And from that personal collection, we create conceptual reality from ultimate reality. So in Buddhist thought, ultimate reality is the pure sensing experience and conceptual reality is what we make it into. Can you tell the difference moment by moment between what the sensing experience is and then what you make it into? 
can you do that in such a way that it's clear about what mind state you're in so that you can see uh, if the mind is clear and equanimous that the the conceptual reality that you create is a fairly accurate picture or is it distorted by certain uh, mind states then that inform the way conceptual reality is constructed and that you can see and recognize in the moment that it's happening how those particular mind states distort the experience of present the present moment again i'm talking about why you're practicing meditation and what the purpose of it is so that you you know actually what it is that you're looking for what is the the insight as we call uh, vipassana practice insight meditation when we say you're looking for insights in your meditation practice what is the nature of the insights that we're asking you to find and um, i'm describing the process of taking the experience of conceptual reality uh, and uh, breaking it apart so that you can understand that it comes from the process of a conditioned response to the sensing experience that we have human beings have actually a fairly limited capacity to sense things a range of sound that we can detect a range of light that we can detect a range of temperature that we can survive in and anything that falls out of that we don't really have a way of knowing and uh, from the very beginning we have these uh, experiences that are then explained to us and we begin to build this database of experience we construct in ourselves a working model of ourselves and what our capacities are and we construct a working model of other people and what we can expect from them and we go through the world as if that were true whether or not it is actually a good match for what's happening in the present moment based on the level of distortion that we're experiencing in that moment and so the practice of insight meditation is really to begin to explore how we experience each of these individual sensing moments and then how we take those individual experiences and form them into the experience of, of, of self and world. The Buddha talked about this in the Satipatthana Sutta uh, uh, 17 times really if you look at it. Mindfulness of inside, mindfulness of outside, mindfulness of inside and outside mindfulness of insight inside being mindfulness of self and the self experience and then mindfulness of outside or mindfulness of the world uh, in buddhism really world the world is other people i'd like to say we are pack animals we are actually predators and not herd animals or prey and so we live in these uh, organized social groups it's interesting in the time that we're in now because those uh, social groups uh, aren't as fluid as they have been or they might be if you organize that well for yourself. And so we're in our own environments with either the people that we ordinarily, or ordinarily live with, but also because of our um, extraordinary uh, privilege a lot of us have the resources to live on our own um, or in very small groups and so that that uh, natural um, 
ordering of the pack is less pronounced. So when we talk about this exploration in terms of the three characteristics, one of the things that we look at is the experience of self. And in Buddhism, the one of the early insights that we're asking you to have is that there is no constant, unchangeable, ongoing self-experience that is separate from all of the other sensing experience. We have a particular combination of sensory events that arise in a moment and we create a conceptual self from that particular pattern of sensory arisings, but that that sense of self arises and passes as the conditions of the present moment change. And so the, the er, one of the earliest of the uh, insight practices is to focus in on this experience and see if you can detect it, the coming and going of the sense of self. Um, the sense of self is that duality, that sense of this is me and I'm experiencing that. I am the author, I'm the creator, I'm the doer, I'm the controller. And one of the ways that we investigate that early insight is by watching the flow of sensing experience with the intention of not doing anything, not causing it, not controlling it, not being the author of it, and noticing as that happens that the sensory experience flows. It happens whether or not we're intending it to happen because the human condition is this activity of sensing and making the sensing into something. So that's an early insight that we look for. Another aspect of the three characteristics is impermanence. And so we look to see uh, whether we can find anything that's lasting, that's ongoing, that's unchanging. And in an ardent, effortful search of this, I think uh, what you will discover is that there isn't. Everything changes. Each sensing experience changes. Each way that we create the conceptual experience changes. Um, and that it's a constant flowing movement of sensing and um, change. And then the reactivity, uh, one of the things that Dan says is that even if you can clear out all of the, uh, the misunderstandings about everything, you remain in this human body as long as you're in this form that is reactive. If, you have, if you're a sighted person and light hits the retina, there's a reaction to it. If you're hearing and sound vibrations hit the eardrum, there's a reaction to it. If, if your skin is sensitive, the temperature change you detect, all of those uh, aspects are continuously ongoing. Um, in a more macro sense, the human body is something that uh, will uh, be born, will uh, age, will be subject to sickness and death. Certainly that's a heightened experience in this moment. Um, <clears throat> In the five remembrances, I'm of a nature uh, to grow old. There's nothing I can do to avoid aging. I'm of a nature to grow sick. There's nothing I can do to escape illness. I'm of a nature to die. 
There is nothing I can do to escape death. Everything I have and everyone I love is of the nature to change. There's nothing I can do to prevent losing them. Uh, my only true actions are my, uh, my only true possessions are my actions. There's nothing I can do to escape the consequences of my actions. As you explore this, and and I think that it's important to understand that you need to have the direct experience of this so that you can really see this. Um, if you don't, the beliefs that are different than that, that conflict with these views, may prevent you from seeing it. Um, and you'll rely on... Um, I'm always chasing and muting. Uh, anyway, um, <clears throat> you may end up relying on these um, versions of things that you create, uh, that you rely on. And not see the way things are. And why this is an important thing to understand is that if you create these fixed views, these rigid views, then in each moment as all of the potentialities arise, you exclude some of them in order to reinforce the, the views that you hold. And so you miss the opportunity to choose from the full range of potentialities in each moment and may direct yourself in these recurring patterns in your life that are often unsatisfying. So that's the main reason that we practice and we practice um, depending on how you organize it in, in a progressive way of looking at these different aspects, um, uh, seeing clearly what they are and then moving to the next access, uh, next insight. Um, So in the beginning, you need to be able to place your attention in the sensory activity that makes up uh, that ultimate reality and hold your attention there long enough so that you don't get distracted by the arising and passing of sensory experiences. Anything that has content in it, of course, can be quite sticky. Anything that you don't really want to know about yourself and your conditioning can be uh, create a sense of aversion. Um, and so the first piece is to develop enough concentration that you can place your attention where you need to. I like to use basic uh, concentration building practices in order to develop that level of concentration. Uh, in, in Buddhism we call it access concentration or developing uh, enough concentration that you can place your attention where you want it and keep it there and not get pulled into the content of the sensing experience, the content of thinking, the content of feeling. And from that place of concentration be able to watch the arising and passing of the individual sense gates and how you take those individual sensing experiences 
and form them into your perception of the present moment. Once you have developed a sufficient level of concentration, then you can began, begin to do the, the practices of uh, opening up the sensing experience and pulling it into pieces so that you can examine the interaction between the different sense gates. Vipassana V uh, means to divide and Pasana means to see uh, clearly. So through dividing the sensory experience uh, and seeing the interaction between the individual sense experiences, we can get an accurate picture of what we're capable of sensing and then what we make that sensing experience into. Uh, Vipassana, of course, is not the only uh, path to do this in. Um, and um, I teach mostly from the Theravada uh, place because that's where my teacher Shinzen um, teaches uh, from. And I am a, a Dharma Maps person, so I like to have a roadmap and I like to have the different individual stages of insight um, uh, to explore. Uh, and the way that these maps are written is quite linear and you can move from insight to insight through them. But that doesn't work for everybody. Uh, certainly the Tibetan maps that uh, Dan teaches from are completely different than the Theravada maps. At the same time, very similar uh, since they're all rooted in the same uh, insight of the, of the Buddha. Um, so Another thing, um, because we are householders um, and we don't tend to uh, practice for long periods each day, the concentration practice is also something that can be quite useful to do uh, in the first part of each sitting period because it settles and concentrates the mind and then you can move into the uh, insight practices. Shinzen is a retreat teacher, and so he doesn't teach a concentration practice separately because he only teaches on retreat, and when you go for a week or 10 days or however long you go, the concentration develops just from the long hours of sitting. But for householders who are not necessarily going on uh, two or three or four retreats a year, it's better, I think, and uh, or at least faster to have a uh, concentration practice that develops. The thing that can happen um, to you as you begin this insight practice is that if you can't concentrate well enough, you can't do the techniques well enough to generate the insight that the technique is meant to offer you. And in not having the experience of that insight, uh, think that meditation uh, is limited for you. Um, and so uh, I think it's important to pay attention to that. I do want you to have a meaningful meditation experience right off the bat, and I want you to have an understanding of how to organize your practice so that in the limited amount of time that householders typically have for practice, that it really uh, gets you uh, the insight you want. In Buddhism, of course, we're talking about a particular type of insight. In um, <clears throat> a Dharma map, for instance, in, in, instance, the 
purpose of the map is to take you to classical enlightenment. Um, but that isn't the... But did, were you asking a question? Or just I missed the mic. Um, <clears throat> if there's an insight that's related to something other than um, enlightenment, that also can come up. So you're, you're sitting in meditation and you notice that you're having psychological insights about the nature of your early conditioning and, and, uh, and um, um, which is being triggered by some relationship experience that you're having at work or uh, a work insight arises and a problem that you had uh, that you needed to solve, the answer of which arises when you're sitting in meditation. All of these are useful and you can get something out of them. Um, it depends on how you're organizing the practice and what your end goal is and purpose of it is. Um, in this traditional way of teaching meditation, the end goal is uh, classical enlightenment and everything else along the way is just um, uh, um, purposeful and useful, but, but not necessarily leading you in that way. So that in the traditional way of teaching meditation, of course, all of those insights are, are not valued in the same way that the classical enlightenment insights are. Tonight, what I thought I would do is teach a, a basic breath counting strategy to develop concentration, and then to teach a basic uh, uh, insight technique called see, hear, feel. Um, I'm curious to know uh, um, how many people know how to do that. So if you could thumb up, could get a sense. So I'm having, um, <clears throat> so I'm going to say about two thirds of the people um, can do this and one third can't. So um, if you would be so kind as to allow me to uh, give some detailed instructions for people that are just beginning and then maybe uh, uh, listen to them anyway and, and maybe uh, reflect on how you're currently doing it. So in a breath counting strategy, we want to place our attention and sustain it in a one-pointed manner, which means we don't allow it to move. Um, wherever the sensations of the breath uh, are the strongest is a good place to focus. So that could be tip of the nose, back of the throat, uh, opening of the mouth, rising of the chest, rising of the belly. But once you make a decision of where to place your attention, you want to keep it there. If you notice that you get distracted by anything, as soon as you're aware that you're distracted by it, you come back and uh, Place your attention again at the point that you've chosen to focus on. In breath meditation, breathing in, there's the arising, the middle part of the breath, and then the end of the breath. What you may notice is uh, that the diaphragm uh, sharply contracts. There's a pressure of a vacuum in the lungs. Air is drawn in through the nose and mouth. There's a capacity to detect the uh, humidity quality of the air, also the temperature of the air 
the body begins to change, the muscles around the rib cage relax. As the um, chest lifts, the pressure of the vacuum dissipates, and then you reach a capacity where the chest is full, the um, and then the diaphragm relaxes, the muscles around the rib cage contract. There's another kind of pressure in the lungs. This is the full lungs and the air being pushed out. Most of the time, it's mostly the weight of the chest that pushes the air out. You can detect a change in the humidity, a change in the temperature, uh, the in, in intensity of the pressure dissipates as you reach the middle and then toward the end it dissipates. Sometimes there's a gap between the out-breath and the in-breath. It's a particular point to pay attention to because it's the most common place of getting pulled into thinking and then the cycle repeats. In using a breath counting strategy to do this, we're going to count both the inside uh, in breath and the out breath. Um, see if I can find the um, echoing. So breathing out, count one, breathing in, count one, breathing out, count two, breathing in, count two. Breathing out, count three, breathing in, count three, breathing out, count four, breathing in, count four, breathing out, count five, breathing in, count five, and then begin the count again at one. We're going to do that for about 10 minutes or so. You want to get to a place where you can breath count for a period of 10 minutes without losing the count even once. Um, and that would be enough concentration to, to be confident to take on um, the insight practices. Um, the counting is not the meditation. The sensation of the breath is the meditation object. So you want to keep as much attention on the actual sensation of the breath as possible and just have a little bit of attention on the counting in the background. Um, it is dividing the object of meditation, which makes it a little, little bit harder to uh, develop concentration. But it's so easy to get pulled into thinking and have the mind simply return you without um, noticing that I think in the beginning, uh, or just as a, as a, a, a well, way of developing concentration in each moment is, uh, in maintaining a householder practice, it's quite useful. The next technique that we're going to use is called See, Hear, Feel, and it's meant to divide uh, the basic sensory experience into three broad domains. So visual experience, auditory experience, and the felt sense of the body. Some of you will be able to do this quite easily from the very beginning, and for other people it won't be so distinct, the, the divisions between these sensing activities. And so um, uh, any visual experience, external sight space, internal visual thinking. There's aspects of internal visual thinking if you've not explored them, um, but are present a mental screen where you experience memory, planning, fantasy, imagery, the outline of the body in visual thinking. It's part of the proprioceptive system 
where you know how the body's currently positioned. Uh, we, we track the body's location in the current environment so that if you close your eyes, you may see an after image of the body's location, which is very typical. An image reaction to local sensation in the body and also an image reaction to exterior sound. That's the collection of visual thinking. Any of those sensing experiences activated and your attention is drawn to them, you would generate a single word C in the mind. Any auditory experience, so external sound or internal auditory thinking, some people are also aware of a subtle vibratory energy that's in um, auditory thinking space most of the time. Any of those activations, that's here. And then any sensation that arises in the body is a feel sensation. Is that all making sense, these instructions? We're noting, that is to say, we're knowing where our attention is, we're soaking into the sensing experience, and then uh, we're, we're generating the label. Yep. I have a question. Um, do you want to wait till the end for questions or any time to ask questions? If the question is related to one of the techniques, I'll answer it now. And otherwise, there'll be a period uh, afterwards. So what you the breathing technique and then the, the this technique are two separate techniques that we can choose between? No, I'm going to take you through them. We'll um, begin with I the concentration have, practice and then go into the insight practice. I had a question about the breathing part. I've always had problems focusing on my breath because when I do, then I start breathing weird. Right. <laughs> I, I, I hyper focus on the breathing and then I don't normal breathe. I start breathing really weird. Okay. Um, and do you pass out? Well, it is true that breath meditation does not work for everybody. So if it's really something that you can't do, uh, do something else. Um, okay. A lot of people do yoga or have some yoga practice, and so they're used to controlling the breath. And here, what we are trying to do is just allow the breath. But it also is, a, is an aspect of mentalizing that's important to be able to develop. And uh, this aspect of mentalizing on the one end is spontaneity and on the other end is monitoring or control. And what happens when uh, you get uh, caught up in the sensation of the breath and, and need to control the operation of it, your mentalizing is collapsing on the side of too much control. And so that it also can be useful to open it back up uh, into the spontaneous side and simply allow the breath to come and go however it comes and goes and at the same time monitor it. It is a particular uh, con conditioning response to that uh, dimension of mentalizing um, that you would be pushing against in doing the, the breath counting technique. Uh, there are other ways to come at that particular aspect of developing mentalizing, but that, that would be something that I think would be very useful to do if you wanted to push into it. But if it becomes too distracting or too distressing, then it's it's better to switch 
and go to a technique that is uh, concentrating. Is it one of those things where because it, it's challenging for me and I have difficulties with it, that it's better to allow myself to keep trying to practice it so that I can get better at it? Or is it more of what you just said of um, letting go for a bit and <laughs> coming back to it? I would... Um... The first choice is always to bear down, but bearing down doesn't off, always work. And so if you bear down and that doesn't work, then the next choice is to back off. Okay. Sometimes the back, backing off doesn't relieve uh, the, the distress either, and in which case you bear down again. But you're always in, in practice moderating the way that the practice goes in that bearing down and backing off dimension. Um, in terms of developing mentalizing, we really do want to be able to be in the entirely spontaneous flow of the experience of the activity of our cells with no interference, and then be able to monitor that or watch that, and then move to make adjustments if necessary. And if you get too stuck on one end or the other, uh, it creates a kind of, uh, constriction or lack of freedom. Okay, thank you. All right. Let's just begin and then we can, we can, um, <clears throat> um, I'll answer questions at the end. So settling into your meditation posture, we're going to begin with the breath counting strategy, but first you want to check in uh, with the body. We want to be able to hold the posture still without moving, and in order to do that we need to set the body in a position where the, we don't use a lot of muscle power to hold the posture so that it doesn't get painful uh, from the muscles getting tired and distract you from the meditation and require you to move. So doing a quick inventory is useful. If you're sitting in a chair, plant your feet so you have a good solid base. If you're sitting on a bench or a cushion, arrange the legs so they'll be comfortable for the period of sitting. Hips above the knees is usually useful. Um, that uh, prevents uh, any restriction in the fluids in the legs which can cause an irritation that distracts you from the meditation. Uh, tilting the pelvis slightly forward uh, helps uh, support the soft curve in the lower back, which supports the middle and upper back. Drawing the shoulders back and down, intentionally relaxing the muscles in the back, tucking in the chin, moving the head forward and back, the torso forward and back until you find a sweet spot where the back muscles are mostly relaxed. 
sometimes in the beginning setting the meditation posture, the posture is uh, different or feels strange in comparison to way that, the way that you normally hold the body. Um, but what you're trying to do is establish a particular posture for the body that's associated strongly with meditation so that when you take that posture, the body-mind knows not to just fall asleep, but it knows that you're going to be engaged in the activity of meditation. We tend to control the brightness of the mind um, by controlling the core of the front side of the body, the tension there. If you notice that the mind is sleepy, sluggish, you can tighten up the core and that tends to brighten up the mind. If you notice that the mind is restless and agitated, you can intentionally relax the core of the body. That tends to settle it down. An easy way to do that is by hand position. If you need to tighten up the core, lifting the hands off the lap a couple of inches. And if you need to settle or relax the mind, letting the hands rest on the legs. I like to use a hand position where the palms are up, right hand on top of the left with the thumbs touching. Maintaining the thumbs touching and maintaining the balance in the back requires present moment awareness. If you get pulled away into thinking, what happens, what tends to happen is that the thumbs drop and the body drifts out of balance. That gives you a physical sensation that alerts you to the loss of mindfulness. That happens, of course, just come back into the present moment, reset the back, reset the thumbs. If you relax the tongue too much, uh, that can allow saliva to slip into the uh, esophagus and get caught up in the breathing process, causing you to cough. So it can be useful to hold the tongue against the roof of the mouth, which helps with the circulation of saliva. Closing the eyes, just letting the breath go in and out as it will, no effort to control it. And just take a moment to expand and contract with the breath. So as you investigate the breathing process, pick the place that you're going to position your attention. So tip of the nose, opening of the mouth, back of the throat, rising of the chest, rising of the belly. Wherever the sensation of the breath is the most prominent and easy for you to focus, place your attention there. Just letting the breath go, letting it do whatever it does. Some breaths are long, some are short, some are deep, some are shallow. Breathing in as you breathe out, begin the count, counting one on the out-breath, one on the in-breath, two on the out-breath. Two on the in-breath, three on the out-breath, three on the in-breath, up to five. When you reach five, begin the count again at one.
Though most of your attention be, should be focused on the sensations of the breath, noting the beginning, the middle, the end of the in-breath, the beginning, the middle, the end of the out-breath, the space between, counting at the end of the in-breath and the end of the out-breath. If you notice that you get pulled away into thinking, no big deal. Just bring your attention back. Begin the count again at one, over and over. The mind will eventually settle.
All right, let go of the concentration practice. We'll begin the insight practice working with the see, hear, feel technique. So you're just going to let your attention be drawn to whatever sensing experience is interesting to you. When you arrive there, you're going to know where your attention is. You're going to soak into the sensing experience. And then you're going to generate a single word label that corresponds to where your attention is. If it's in any aspect of visual experience, the label is C. If it's in any aspect of auditory experience, it's here. And if it's any, act, any uh, felt sense of the body, it's feel. So letting your attention be drawn to something, knowing whether you're in, see, hear, or feel, soak into the sensing experience of that and then generate the one-word label. The labeling helps with uh, concentration. Uh, and it engages a different part of the brain to generate that uh, uh, label. So more of the brain is caught up in the activity of meditating. You can use a rhythmic noting strategy. So every so often, at a, a standard interval, generate the label. Or you can use a freely moving strategy where you simply let your attention be drawn to wherever it's drawn and then as you arrive in each new sensing experience, generate the label. The upside of the rhythmic method is that uh, you go for less uh, long periods of time caught up in thinking because you notice that the mind isn't generating the labels. But the labels can be distracting from the sensing experience. The upside of the freely moving strategy is that you really can soak into the sensing experience. The downside is that you can get distracted for long periods of time and not notice that you're caught up in thinking. I'll do a little out loud. I prefer the rhythmic method. So at the end of each outbreath, I note where my attention is. See. See. Feel. Feel. See. Hear. See. One more than one sensing activity may arise at the same time. Just zoom in on one, doesn't matter which one. We're not trying to cover everything. We're just really trying to experience these individual arisings one by one.
So in this particular technique, we really have no interest at all in what the content of any of the sensing experience is. We are focusing just on the activation of the sensing gate or the capacity to sense. The aspect of mind, of course, is where your attention is drawn to. So you may put some attention on that. Let's say that you're in C space and then you notice that there's activations in other sense gates that are beginning to draw your attention. Can you watch that flow of your attention from as it moves from object to object? Maybe in the present moment, a couple of sensing experiences arise competing with each other and then without interfering or choosing, noticing where your attention is drawn, you begin to have some sense of what your high value targets are in watching that process. But it's very basic, these divisions, broadly pulling apart visual auditory and the felt sense of the body. Of course, if you do get pulled into the content, as soon as you're aware of it, just come out and start the technique over as many times as necessary until you're in that meditative mind.
So um, just before we do uh, the Q&A period, I wanted to say that uh, the teaching is offered on a Donna basis and any uh, support that you can give is greatly appreciated. The, there's a link on the website where you can um, make a donation if you wish to. Um, anybody have any questions about the practice that we did this evening? Questions about something else? Hi. I have a question. Okay. Uh, when you have um, multiple sense streams happening at the same time, do you have a preference over which one you pick to note, or does it matter? Um, <coughs> you can either pick one, it doesn't matter, or you can just, um, at that moment, pay attention to the aspect of mind and see which one it picks without you doing anything. What's interesting about that, of course, is the insight of your personal preferences of what's interesting to you, because that's what will ultimately choose where you focus your attention, and you can begin to get some uh, insight into what that, what that is that you like to pay attention to and what you avoid paying attention to. Thank you. Yep. Someone else? Hi, George. I have a question. Good evening. Hi. Can I ask about uh, metta practice? Sure. Um, when you're doing metta and you say, try to feel that metta in the mind and not in the body. Right. Can you explain that a little bit more, please? Yes. Um, so metta mind or a mind state, how do you know uh, what mind state you're in, do you know that you have mind states? Um, like angry or sad or? Yeah. How do you know that the mind is angry? And that may be different from um, a momentary flash of anger or a self-generated thought of anger. Um, one of the things about living in a body, of course, is that we experience anger because um, the limbic system dumps the chemicals into the, the body-mind that creates the experience of anger in the body. And then the mind knows that. Uh, so the mind can incline itself toward anger, or it can be a buildup of being angry over a period of time that, that creates that experience. Same of sadness or fear or excitement or joy or love or any of those experiences. Um, ultimate reality is the pure sensing and then conceptual reality is what we make it into. And as you move back and forth between these, so one of the things to begin to train yourself to do is to touch into just sensing and seeing what you make it, touching into sensing and see what you make. And then that process has a tendency to reveal what, what the nature of the mind state is that's in between. The, the Buddha described this as um, um, one of the metaphors that he used was the description of the mirror. 
So 2,600 years ago, a mirror was a dark glazed bowl filled with water. And he said, if the water is still and clear, the image that's reflected off the surface of the water is a, a pretty good representation of the, um, I've lost you, I'm gonna try and find you again. There you are. Um, a pretty good representation of what's out there. Of course, we don't experience directly uh, what's happening to us, we experience it through this uh, modeling that we make, this working model that we make. Um, if the mind is still and clear, if the mind is equanimous, then the reflection in the mind of what our sensing experience is, is an accurate, accurate portrayal of what that sensing experience is. The mind is filled with anger. It's as if the water in the bowl were boiling. It's very distorting of what the representation is. If the mind is filled with sloth and torpor, it's as if algae had overgrown it. It's restless and agitated. It's as if the wind were blowing across it. It's filled with craving. It's as if it's dyed a bright color. If it's filled with doubt, it's as if the water were muddy. But if the, the mind were inclined uh, toward kindness, what would the, the, the distortion in the creation of the world be? And can you track that? So in the beginning, it's just merely trying to figure out what a mind state is. How do I know whether my mind is equanimous? How do I know if it's angry? How do I know if it's sad? How do I know if it's fearful? How do I know if it's joyful? How do I know if it's filled with love? Have you ever noticed that when the mind is filled with love, it's distorting? and things look differently than if the mind is just equanimous, or if the mind is filled with anger, it distorts. So in, the, in these heart practices, we're attempting to generate the mind state and then intentionally distort it, distort the, concept, the creation of uh, conceptual reality. And so what you'll notice is if you can learn what the mind state of loving kindness is and, and hold it, it distorts the perception of the present moment, but it does it in a, in a beneficial or a skillful way. And it inclines you toward responding to the world in a way um, um, that uh, can be quite uh, beautiful. Um, okay, I think I got it, yeah. So in the, be you. in the beginning, it's trying to figure out what the mind state is what it is, how do you know what it is? And then trying to discern uh, one mind state from another. Uh, an example of that might be, can you detect emotion in the body? Yes, that's easy. Okay. <laughs> so you learn to do that. Can you detect one emotion from another emotion in the body? You can do that with mind states. You can learn how you know what a mind state is, and then you can de de detect one mind state from another, and then you can have agency in bringing a particular mind state uh, to the fore, which is very useful. If you notice something happens in the present moment and the mind uh, inclines toward anger and you can recognize it and you have agency, you can then incline it toward something else. Kindness is often a, a good one to do. Um, and then you can use it as an object uh, to develop concentration so that you can both incline the mind toward uh, kindness and you can incline the mind toward developing high concentration capacity.
uh, which both are quite useful, I think. Good. Thank you. Someone else? We've opened it up to any question at this point. So my question is simple, George. In the past, I've always put my hands on my lap. Uh -huh. yeah? And you said to put them palm up. Right. The, the thing that I didn't get is the thumb part. If you could explain the thumb part. So if you put your hands, uh, palms up, and you, you touch the thumbs, can you see that? In order to maintain that mudra or hand position, you have to stay in the present moment. As soon as you get caught up in thinking, what you'll notice is that the thumbs drop down. And so it gives you, it's like a little warning system that alerts you that you're losing mindfulness or that you've lost mindfulness. One, um, and that's why I, I recommend it. Uh, one of the things about the mind is it can take you off. You can be totally engaged and caught up in thinking, and then it can bring you back and it can smooth over the absence unless you have uh, put into place some aspects of posture uh, or mudra uh, that alert you to the fact that you've gotten pulled into thinking. So I like to use the, the posture as one and, and the thumbs as another. And so it's a kind of redundant system to let me know that I'm, I'm losing mindfulness so that I can uh, double down on coming back into it. You know, uh, a lot, and uh, um, depending on if you've uh, ever practiced in, in Asia, um, they're depending on who you're practicing with, they're giving you all of these posture instructions that are quite specific. Um, in the West, uh, maybe the posture instruction isn't so um, uh, elaborate. Um, but I think that the posture is a really important thing to pay attention to because we need to get the body-mind to identify a specific posture that we're using for meditation so that we can train it out of the habit of going to sleep when you settle and close the eyes. And not all meditation practices, of course, are done with eyes closed, but mostly the Theravada stuff is. Someone else? I was listening to one of your talks earlier today, and you were talking about the importance of being dependable in um, in our relations. Right. And uh, so I would just be interested in just some other tips around how to cultivate dependability in, in relations and to ourselves, etc. Um, so reliability is the ground on which secure relationships function, and without that you don't really develop the next stages of them. Secure uh, relationships uh, require reliability. In order to be reliable, you have to be willing to tell the person what you're willing to do and not willing to do, and only agree to do the things that you're actually intending to do. 
so that you become reliable in that sense, that the person feels that you're telling them the truth. Uh, and also what's helpful is that they feel that the reason that you're telling them the truth is because it's meant to be helpful to them. It's called epistemic trust, and, and we learn it or we don't learn it in childhood. Did we have caregivers that um, <clears throat> told us the truth in a way that we could rely on it being truthful? And did they take care of us in a way that was meant to be helpful to us, that was in our interest? The reason that this is an important basis is because if you don't believe that's true of another person, you won't accept the information that they're telling you because you'll think that they're manipulating you or that they're not reliable. And so that, that doing what you say uh, and showing up is really important. In secure functioning relationships, what people say and what they do are connected. And in insecure functioning systems, children learn to split off the doing part from what the, the caregiver says to them because they don't match and it creates anxiety for the child. So the child is better off in, in that early um, period of splitting off what the caregiver is doing from what they're saying. As you move through adolescence and become an adult, <clears throat> Uh, if you've disconnected what people do from what they say, you don't really pay attention to how well that matches. Um, and, uh, and so you could in, attempt to engage with other people, and because it's not connected for you, it, it doesn't register for you that you're saying things and not uh, fulfilling them to the other person. What that does, of course, is exclude you from secure relationships because to be in a secure relationship, you have to be reliable. And if you're not reliable, secure people won't be in relationship to you. Um, but it creates a sense of safety. If you're reliable and you show up, people don't worry about it. They assume that that's what's going to happen. Now, it tends to be kind of flat in comparison to the dramatics of unreliability. If somebody makes a dinner date with you and you're not sure whether they're going to show up, there's a lot of highs and lows that come from that. They show up, there's a massive blast of dopamine because they've actually showed up. And if uh, they don't show up, there's all sorts of chemicals that get dumped into the system. And it's a, it's a rich, complex experience, whereas if they just always show up, you don't even think about it, and they show up, and there they are. There's no ride in that. But then so much energy gets consumed in trying to get the relationship to work that it, that energy is taken out of the, the capacity to explore. And actually, where we derive meaning as human beings is from our solo exploration. And if you consume all of that energy that might go into exploring in trying to maintain uh, relationships, um, you'll find that uh, there's a demand for the other person to satisfy that, that absence of your own exploration. And really, they'll never be able to do it in a way that is, is uh, fulfilling. But it may be useful to you in the sense that you're frightened to explore the things that are meaningful to you. And so you build in these systems that prevent you from actually pursuing the things that are meaningful to you because that's, that's distracting and less um, 
disturbing than than actually f facing the uh, the the piece of your own exploration, the piece of your own pursuit of what's meaningful. Um, but one of the things that, and you know, your attachment conditioning happens to you. You don't really have much agency in it, and and it isn't until you're you're into youth really that you can do much about it. And so you want to be able to recognize it. This is one of the things that meditation is so good at. You can you can actually begin to pull apart and see how these things are functioning and then begin to affect them in a way uh, that opens up both your capacity to explore and create real meaning for yourself and also to develop the support team, I like to say. You need to have this... Um, base of people that really are encouraging and supporting of you to explore or you won't be able to do it. Um, you know, if you um, explore out to the edge and get completely emotionally discombobulated from doing that and there isn't anybody to catch you and, and reassure you and, and help you regulate, you begin to limit your capacity to explore and it's easy to limit it to the degree that you don't actually go after things anymore because there's nobody to help you if, if it doesn't go well. And so that's kind of the piece of that. But the, the basic piece is that epistemic trust. Do, the do you trust the people in your life to tell you the truth? And do you believe that the reason that they're telling you what they're telling you is meant to be helpful to you so that you are willing to take the information in from them that they're offering you. Uh, it's one of my favorite topics. I can go on at pretty much any length. <laughs> so I think I'll just arb arbitrarily stop there. Um, particularly in this period now where we're sheltering in place and many of us who live alone are going to be physically isolated from other people is that uh, understand that there's going to be a, an oxytocin deprivation, that physical touch piece that's missing, and that can produce a, a sadness that, that we then associate with different things, even though it's simply the social isolation itself that's causing the sadness. Um, to, to reach out and make contact with people, um, uh, it is true that the the video only is not going to activate oxytocin or that reward system, but you can uh, be in contact enough. And because uh, what's interesting about this time is that since so many of us are in the same boat and everybody benefits from the connection, it's easier to uh, make those connections more regular. Uh, than than you might have before when you were just in your uh, life. So and and uh, I tend to uh, prefer a kind of regiment, and so you could schedule all those things, schedule calls or schedule conversations. But understand that that if you don't. Uh, allow somebody else to help you emotionally regulate, you'll end up auto-regulating in some way. So do you notice that you're you're uh, watching a lot of 
media or do you notice that you're playing video games or how do you auto-regulate? How do you distract yourself and are you engaging in that? And you may notice that if you're finding yourself doing that, that the preferred method would be to attempt to engage with somebody else. So that's the idea. Can be proactive in your own well-being. All right, everybody, thank you. We'll see you uh, next Thursday.